Welcome back, everyone, to New Books in Military History. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. Today, I'm pleased to welcome back to New Books, Greg Dadis. Um, I don't know if any of you recall, but six years ago, Greg joined us to discuss his book, No Sure Victory, Measuring U.S. Army Effectiveness and Progress in the Vietnam War. Now, since then, Greg's career has certainly undergone quite a transition. Uh, He retired from the United States Army with the rank of colonel and is currently an associate professor at Chapman University, where he's also the director of their MA program in War and Society. Most recently, he served as a project advisor on Ken Burns's much-discussed series, The Vietnam War. But today, we're going to be talking with Greg about his two most recent books, not just one, but two, which taken together, I feel, offer a very comprehensive revisionist account of the Vietnam War. The first is Westmoreland's War, Reassessing American Strategy in Vietnam. And the second is Withdrawal, Reassessing America's Vinyl Years in Vietnam, both of these being published by Oxford University Press. And by way of full disclosure, I'll offer, again offer, as I did in our first interview, that Greg and I share an intellectual pedigree and that we both took courses early on at Temple University under the late Russell Wigley. Uh, Greg, thanks for coming back. Thanks so much for having me on, Bob. I appreciate it. Yeah. Good to have you. Yeah. Listen, I've asked you this question about no sure victory, but I do think it certainly has some relevance in this context as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, basic question. What prompted you to pursue the project? And was it always your intention to write a multi-volume history of the military strategy and management of the Vietnam War? Yeah. Um, no, it certainly wasn't my intention. I, I, I obviously bit off a, a lot more than I initially was uh, planning on chewing on. Um, so New Shore Victory really came from a, uh, a request for information uh, just as the uh, Iraq War was ramping up in 2003 and 2004 when I was serving at West Point. And a senior uh, commander in the Special Forces that was on his uh, heading to his second tour in Iraq um, basically asked the history department if they had any information on how you measured progress and effectiveness in, a, in an unconventional environment. That if you didn't have um, the, the standard um, ways to track progress like geography or, um, you know, if there was a war without fronts, as Thomas Thayer called it um, back in the mid 80s, that uh, how did you get a sense of whether you were making progress or not, or whether your operations were being effective. And so a colleague of mine uh, and I uh, dove into a case study on Vietnam, and he worked on the French Indochina aspect of it, and I did the American experience. And what I quickly found is that the much of the literature was actually uh, inaccurate, that, that the larger storyline of the American experience in Vietnam was that there was this attrition strategy and the measure of, of uh, uh, the metric of measurement uh, was the body count, and, then, and that was it, that you know, the U.S. Army was committed to one thing and one thing only, which was killing the enemy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the best way to measure progress, obviously, was the body count, and that was it. And as I started doing more and more research, I found that just the opposite was the case, that there was this this incredible effort to measure just about everything from the military side of the house, the political, the development, the economy. Um and so that's where no sure victory came from. And then the logical question was that if that something had to be wrong in the literature, that if if the United States Army was measuring all of these other things besides body count, was it possible that the strategy was more than just about attrition? And that was really the question that I asked coming out of North Shore victory that led to a reassessment of Westmoreland's strategy. Well, let's turn to Westmoreland's war. You describe how you take issue as a scholar with the way that past and present historians have, you know, really positioned William Westmoreland as just settling on an attritional strategy in Vietnam, you know, and you go on to argue that on the whole, we've misunderstood Westmoreland and the skills he brought to bear Mm -hmm. in the Vietnam war. How so? In one sense, I I think he's become this uh, one dimensional caricature, this kind of, modern major general that is is completely out of his depth that, um, you know, the scholars like Andrew Kapenovic, uh, the army in Vietnam kind of paints Westmoreland and a larger army as, as committed to this uh, army concept where all they know is, is World War II style of fighting. 
right. and, and they don't have the intellectual capacity to to kind of move beyond a World War II, World War II style of fighting. And what I was hoping to accomplish with uh, with Westmoreland's War was to add some depth to the character to kind of pull him out of um, uh, out of the, the historical um, oversimplification, I think, and and kind of put him directly back into his time. And I think when you do that, you see an officer and a larger military command in Vietnam that is is much more attuned to um, the complexities of the war that they're encountering. They, I think, clearly understand that this is just as much a political war as it is a military war um, and are, in fact, I think, um, cognizant that, that military operations alone are not going to solve some of the underlying problems that they're facing in South Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Well, you go on to argue the big part of the problem we have with with understanding Vietnam as a whole is that as a rule, the definition of strategy mm-hmm. as applied to military operations is murky. How does that become an issue here? <laughs> I, th- I think we're still dealing with that issue today, to be quite frank, um, yeah. and just trying to get a sense of, of what we mean by strategy. And there's so many definitions out there. I, I touched upon a few of them at the beginning of, of Westmoreland's War, just to kind of get a sense of um, the problem of, of coming up with a, uh, um, a strategy and, and defining it. And if we think about what strategy means, you, you can go back to Clausewitz, obviously, and think about this as being um, something that's in his term, you know, the use of the engagement for the purpose of war. Um, and then if you look at critics like B.H. Liddell Hart, who in World War I said that, you know, this was really, this definition posed by Clausewitz was really a, a way to glorify battle and that strategy had to be much more comprehensive and um, and hopefully um, place you in a position where you can achieve a better state of future peace, as he called it. Um, or if you look at Colin Gray's more recent uh, definition, where it's this bridge between military power and political purpose. Um, and so I think that that complicates the narrative is that there's there's so many different definitions out there. And then when you actually look at the definition that the U.S. Army was using on the cusp of uh, that organization of going to Vietnam, it too is is uh, immensely complex and and uh, and overarching, even to the point I think of being vague. That it, it characterizes strategy as as political and economic and psychological. Um, and what I found, in fact, is is that rather than just being a, a simple strategy of attrition of just focus on killing the enemy, um, Westmoreland, in fact. Um, was very much in line with this contemporary definition of strategy, which I think was, uh, in a sense, replicating what Liddell Hart was saying in terms of uh, strategy needing to be comprehensive to hopefully achieve that better state of peace. Right. Well, this is all taking place against the backdrop of decolonization and the wars of national liberation. Exactly which themselves have a different context. That's an incredibly important point, Bob. And I think um, my sense is, again, that I that um, senior officers, not just Westmoreland, but others in the Army, understood that. They understood that there were these new forces that were being unleashed, not just in, in uh, Indochina, but uh, obviously in North Africa and Algeria. And um, we saw the, the British... Um, dealing with issues of decolonization in Malaya. Um, so I think there is a sense among the officer corps at that time that, that, that this is very different than World War II and, um, and the decolonization and, and issues of independence and, and thinking about how these societies are going to define themselves in the modern era, in the post-colonial era, is also part of the larger problem that they're confronting. So in essence, then, Westmoreland, was prepared. He had the he had the background, both professionally and intellectually, to respond to these pressures. Does he have a plan not only to end the war but to actually win in Vietnam? Uh, that's another great question. I think the the problem that uh, not just Westmoreland deals with, but but Abrams, his successor, I think the same problem that Johnson and Nixon deal with is what's the definition of victory. Um, and obviously, it is very different than World War II, where you know, the president gives Eisenhower, as an example, in Europe, a, uh, 
an objective of unconditional surrender of the enemy. And that clearly is not going to be the case here. So from the very beginning, there is a sense that um, uh, because of the political limitations placed on uh, U.S. armed forces, that um, the, the outright defeat of North Vietnam in a traditional military sense is not going to be accomplished here. So in one sense, um, it's probably more of a um, – that Korea has more of historical relevancy here in terms of defining what victory means. And again, that, that seems to be something that will have to be negotiated. Um, and I think that's the problem that um, that Westmoreland deals with early on. I think from the start, he is certainly there to um, arrest and then hopefully reverse what what he calls the losing trend. And then place the the allies in a position where South Vietnam will be able to um, become a stable and independent non-communist government, which was the objective. And I think clearly that's that's a daunting political objective, and and I think one that plays at the the very heart of why uh, ultimately Westmoreland is is not as successful as he might have hoped to be. Right. Well, I'm I'm struck as I read both books for the extent to which that. Westmoreland, Abrams, and, and you know, generally the staff at MACV had really inculcated uh, Maoist theory of revolutionary war. And you could see how, as you describe, in many circumstances, Westmoreland and others are looking at the conflict as, you know, we're entering that third right. stage in the Maoist insurrection model. Yeah, and, and the problem with and, that is that uh, Les Juan and, and the – Politburo is not strictly following a Maoist model. And so, you know, in, in one sense, um, and I, this is, I think, where Westmoreland can be um, uh, taken up for a bit of criticism, is I think that the MACV staff, along with Westmoreland, is very much thinking in a, in a sequential um, model of strategy, uh, in large part because that's how Mao's model uh, lays out. And so every time that they see uh, the North Vietnamese army participating in uh, in large scale campaigns and battles that that seems to be proof to them that the the uh, Hanoi's leaders have made that transition over to the third phase of of Maoist revolutionary doctrine. But but I think the the Politburo and, and Lei Zuan in particular was much more flexible in its application uh, of Maoist doctrine than probably most officers at the time believed. Yes, certainly. Certainly. And again, it's that example of, you know, preparing to wage a next conflict on the basis of what are perceived lessons for the prior. Exactly. One. And I think we're still struggling with this today in our own doctrine when it comes to counterinsurgency. I think we, we still very much take a sequential approach. And if you think about, uh, actually, if you compare uh, doctrine today under, uh, you know, the, the, the revamping of counterinsurgency doctrine under Petraeus and compare that to the early and mid sixties counterinsurgency doctrine, they both mirror a process that is sequential in nature where security comes first and then political stability will follow. And that stability, stability will lead to political success against the insurgency. And the problem I think that Westmoreland and Abrams both have uh, in Vietnam is it's it's never that sequential, that it's always intertwined, that the political stability uh, or instability in Saigon is always impinging on um, the security campaign. And the security campaign, um, because it's necessarily violent, um, even the misnomered pacification pac- campaign is not as peaceful as uh, as we would have liked to or as officers hoped it would have been, uh, that that security campaign is undermining the stability aspect of uh, the political community. Um, and so I think that's really what um, what officers at the time never were quite able to grapple with uh, to the ground is, is how do you do security and development and political um, stability operations simultaneously so they're not competing with one another? And I think, um, quite frankly, we're still struggling with that today. You raised a second question early on in the book, too, about the overall strategy that was developed um, by McVie and how it was mm-hmm. introduced. And the question in particular is, were the material means employed in Vietnam consistent with the plan and its ultimate objectives? How, how does how do we respond to that? Uh, Westmoreland certainly would have, have suggested that the means uh, were not as um, – uh, were 
were not within line for the objectives that were given to him. Well, we see that we see that in the constant request right, exactly. for further escalation. Right. Sure, but does that then? I mean, we're talking also about again, as we've described, this difference between conventional mm-hmm. war and a counterinsurgency, and the means that are brought to bear for the conventional war are certainly going to be counterproductive, right. as as we've described amongst the general population. Yeah, and so the, if you think about uh, his strategy as, as he developed it as this kind of three-phase uh, operation, um, which was going to take um, years in, in his mind, that this first task alone, the first phase to, as I mentioned, halt the losing trend, included securing major military bases and defending major political and population centers. It was, it was also included, obviously, fighting the enemy and, and strengthening um, the ARV and the Army of uh, the Republic of Vietnam. Um, and then as we moved into the second phase of, uh, of his strategy, he hoped to resume the offensive and destroy the enemy forces, but also reinstate um, or reinstitute what he called rural pacification or rural construction activities, which uh, ultimately came under the larger rubric of pacification. Um, and so when you put all this together in terms of you know securing bases and population centers and and training and strengthening the local army and defeating the enemy on the field of battle and participating in pacification and development activities. Um, and then ultimately in the, in the third phase, hope, hoping to defeat and destroy the enemy and then ultimately turn it over to the South Vietnamese. Um, that's a lot of resources. And it, it's important to note here that they're not just military resources. There's a large, obviously, civilian effort that's part of the pacification campaign that will take hold in late 1966 and really get underway in 1967. So. Um, that is a problem, I think, and and McNamara actually um, acknowledges this in his memoirs after the war. That uh, you know, he said he, he acknowledges that he wished they would have had more of a discussion about uh, more than just resources that were going to be put into the effort, but how those resources likely would have been able to accomplish the objective set out for the military command. And so, what I think you have happen is that. Early on in the, that spring of 1965, as the president, uh, Lyndon Johnson, is getting ready to make the decision to send full ground combat troops to South Vietnam, there's a discussion about resources, but there's never a discussion about how those resources are going to be used in the most effective way to accomplish this larger political goal of a stable and independent non-communist South Vietnam. And that clearly is a a major gap in the strategic planning process of the early American effort. Well, it's interesting too, I think. I mean, when I teach Vietnam in my graduate mm-hmm. courses, uh, we, we just covered it briefly in a foreign policy course last semester. You know, I, I try to make the case or I encourage students to consider Vietnam not merely as the military contest, or even exclusively as a political right. contest, but looking it through the lens and the framework of modernization exactly. theory. And this idea that we're going to save South Vietnam by remaking it mm-hmm. in our image as much as possible. But if you don't have the resources to do that or understand what those resources need to be, it becomes a, a almost insurmountable task. Right. And and I think when you focus uh, too much on the resources, especially the military resources, you're not um, challenging the assumptions upon which modernization theory is built. Um that it may very well be likely that local leaders do not see the United States as the apogee of political thought, that there may in fact have been uh, um, a genuine commitment to communist theory, um, not just in North Vietnam, but in South Vietnam as well. And um, I think there, there wasn't enough discussion about that in terms of whether those in a sense, almost New Deal reforms that were implanted into foreign policy thought were were valid as we moved into the 1950s and into the 1960s. And yet, even at the beginning of the direct intervention in the spring of 1965, you have many prominent members in the Johnson administration looking at South Vietnam as a lost cause, you know, at least in the absence of a stable government or a popular government. This creates an even taller order for Westmoreland. I correct? think so. There's, there's, um, 
you know, you do have the uh, the key dissenter inside the Johnson White House, who's uh, under Secretary of State George Ball, um, but but really doesn't kind of get as much traction as as he would have liked uh, in terms of having the president reconsider some of his decisions when it comes to as Ball called it, getting on the tiger's back and then not being able to know when you're going to get off. Um, but yeah, I think that does complicate matters for Westmoreland because ultimately. Uh, at least my research concludes that it, it's really up to Westmoreland to to come up with a strategy for Vietnam, and and that's problematic because he he doesn't really command the the air campaign over North Vietnam. Uh, at least, yeah, I want to come yeah. back to that. That's a, that's a critical. Um, yeah, unlike uh, you know, unlike um, his predecessors, I think he's clearly dealing with a much more complex problem um, than just kind of fighting conventionally in Europe against the German army is just one example. And so the problem I think Westmoreland has is because there's not enough dialogue between the White House and MACV headquarters in these uh, in these early stages, um, that he's really left to develop strategy on his own. And, um, and I think he probably would have been better served. I think the White House would have been better served if they had had more intense debates about that strategy as it was unfolding. Again, and most importantly, in terms of whether the military tool was capable of accomplishing the political objective. Well, let's move towards the plan for waging war and safeguarding the civilian population in South Vietnam. Did William Westmoreland actively pursue an attrition strategy? Uh, yes, uh, partly. Um, so I, I think the challenge here is to acknowledge that he clearly was waging a war against the enemy that was both conventional and unconventional. He obviously was hopeful that as part of this process of defeating the enemy, that he was going to have to attrit and destroy their capacity in the field. Um, but he also spoke about, uh, attrition from a political standpoint as well, that this was a war of political attrition, not just in Vietnam, right. but also on the American home front that, uh, very early on, uh, he's writing to, uh, the joint chiefs of staff about his concern that this political war of attrition will, will take a toll on the American home front and worry that he's going to lose support. Um, and then also, um, that this attrition warfare in South, inside South Vietnam is going to take a toll on the political community, not just in Saigon, but I think more importantly, um, among the rural population, which is a clear objective of Westmoreland strategy to try and help build better relations between that rural population and the Saigon government and, and bring those two together. Um, and again, as I mentioned earlier, that that's Part of the problem, I think, that we, with American strategy in Vietnam is that it's starting. It, it starts to work at cross purposes with each other. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Well, I mean, I, I appreciate your answer. I mean, I think it's a very nuanced yeah, position. And, on, and, on and I think it's uh, again to relate this to more current um, day operations. Um, it's hard to call this strategy something that that is easily explainable to the American populace. How, how do you define our strategy in Iraq or Afghanistan? It's not simply a war of attrition. It's it's not just counterinsurgency. It's clearly not a, a war of annihilation. Um, so what do we call it? And especially in wars like Vietnam or Afghanistan, which uh, are very much provincial in nature, that um, the war is not only complicated, but complex, meaning that uh, the war in the northern provinces is a very different war that's being fought in the Mekong Delta, in large part because of the enemy situation and geography uh, and political uh, loyalties. And so that makes it even more difficult, I think, for Westmoreland, because he has to articulate these broad military concepts in an incredibly complex environment and do so in a way that makes sense to the um, American public and, um, and I would argue to the Vietnamese population as well. And I'm not so sure he had the, the language to, to do just that. And so I think what happens is um, because the military lexicon of the day is, is unsuited to, to, to characterize this, we end up with these cliches of body count, 
search and destroy attrition because it just is easier for us to to put a word on it um you know right. the, the war in iraq and the sad thing is the sad thing is so many historians have just jumped upon that without trying to to parse the issues of, of right. language and discourse and i think so, you're seeing I mean, it you're seeing it today as you, well you, right that um yeah. How do we define our strategy in, in Iraq? And mo- more often than not, we, we come up to the term surge. And that, that, that clearly simplifies and um, probably is not accurate at all in terms of defining a, a, an overall comprehensive strategy. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Well, let's talk mm-hmm. about operations. I mean, you do go into some, some detail about that. And you describe, I want to start a little bit later and then we'll work back. You describe by 1966-1967 that the operations have come to resemble what you, you call, I like this phrasing, mm-hmm. a mosaic war in which you have different divisional and core commanders being left free really to devise their own tactical mm-hmm. responses and, and even administrative responses in their areas of operation. Doesn't this undermine Westmoreland's efforts? for an overall success in Vietnam? Um, partly, I think, in, in, in the sense that there are some commanders that are obviously more heavy-handed than others. There are, right. You mentioned yeah. 4th Division. Um, as, although as they're, they're dealing uh, with a very different war on the, uh, on the borderlands of South Vietnam, so they're worried about infiltration into South Vietnam, especially um, against uh, North Vietnamese regulars. Um, there are some commanders that that don't believe that pacification is the key to to victory. That that it is in fact uh, destruction of the enemy um, main force units that that will set the stage for success. Um, there are some commanders that that don't get along well with their Vietnamese counterparts, which is a critical aspect of the war that often gets left out of the um, the storyline. Uh, and yet, I think Westmoreland has to allow some. Uh, flexibility in the implementation of his strategy because of that mosaic nature um, that that he can't prescribe an, a comprehensive um, strategy because um, or he can't prescribe the the, the, the best operation and operational approaches and tactics to support that comprehensive strategy because the war is so different if you think of um, uh, the war in the in the southern portion of South Vietnam in the Mekong Delta, the enemy is much more of an insurgency than uh, what the Marines are dealing with in I Corps in the northern provinces, and so Westmoreland has to leave that up to the um, uh, the local commanders to figure out how best to deal with their specific problems, and and what and Abrams will do the same exact thing under his tenure as well. Right. Right. Well, it's interesting. You raise I Corps and the Marine Corps. I mean, that raises the other issue, which I've been at conferences, Society of Military History conferences over the last few years, and it's been a big revival in scholarship on the combined action programs that the Marines instituted in I Corps. Um, you know, presenting as a future model for counterinsurgency yeah. and such. How does Westmoreland respond? Uh, to that? I think correctly in the fact that it's overblown. Um, that uh, this promise that the combined action programs poses uh, never really matches reality. And I've actually done some research on this. And even the Marines themselves, in the official history of the um, of the course participation in Vietnam. Um, suggests that the caps never really kind of evolved uh, as much as was hoped. So um, the other part of this clearly is that, um, you know, there, there's a suggestion that the Marines had it right and, uh, and the Marine commanders in, in the Northern provinces uh, were aghast at this strategy of attrition and, and wanted to follow a much more counterinsurgency approach. But again, that, that, that just is not, um, it doesn't quite bear out, especially when you take a look at the percentages uh, forces put into the CAP program vice uh, those that were left to conventional operations. And again, we have to keep in mind that those five northernmost provinces in, in South Vietnam 
were uh, along the DMZ and along the uh, borderlands with with Laos. Um, so it was m- much more of a conventional war, um, as, as you saw with uh, the assault and siege on Khe Sanh as just one example, um, or the, the borderland battles in 1967. Um, so I... Right. I the numbers, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think at no point did, during the war did the Marine Corps place more than 5%, and I think it's actually less than that, of their resources into the Combined Action Program. Um, and at no point were uh, any of the Combined Action Programs capable of kind of leaving behind a sustainable um, local presence. Um and so uh, my sense is that um, that's kind of part of the, the myth of, of this flat, failed strategy in Vietnam is that uh, Westmoreland clearly saw um, or was presented with a better opportunity and ignored that opportunity. And I, I just don't see that as, um, as being um, validated by the, by the source material. Sure, sure. Well, as you pointed out earlier, you know, the air war certainly mm-hmm. complicates right. matters as well. You know, I mean, he has certainly, you know, full stand on support for tactical air, but it's the strategic bombing aspect and even the regional right. bombing aspect along the border. It is, and an it's an issue for Westmoreland. It's 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 very much an issue um, during the 1972 campaign between Abrams and Nixon. Uh, Abrams actually, um, for the second time, during his tenure, McVie is is almost relieved of command in this case over the air campaign, and so it, it does complicate it. I think in terms of placing this strategy within the larger context of the American approach to Southeast Asia, that the that Operation Rolling Thunder was planned on on other certain assumptions that were never quite uh, realized, and uh, you know the hope that a bombing campaign would would undermine the will of Hanoi never quite uh, worked itself out. Um, the hope that uh, the air campaign against the Ho Chi Minh Trail would stop the infiltration to South Vietnam never quite worked itself out. Um, and uh, I, I think that's clearly part of the, the other aspect of this that you have to take into account to think about why um, American strategy wasn't as successful as it, w- it might have been. Mm-hmm. Well, we come to Tet. Um, and the general consensus, obviously, is that it had very minimal – Reluctant to say this, but to a degree, minimal lingering impact on the military aspect of the conflict. You know, the direct operations, um, mm-hmm. American operations, but that rather it was a largely strategic success affecting American public opinion at this crucial moment. And I don't want to disregard that. I mean, I, I think that there's a certainly ample evidence that that's that's the case. But I've always thought that this is rather singularly focused on an American-centric narrative. Um, How does tech contribute to the breakdown of Westmoreland's multi-tiered strategy and its his relations with the government in the Republic of Vietnam? I think you're right. We've, we've come to believe uh, the myth of Tet that um, it is this great turning point um, that in a war without very many turning points, that this is the one turning point of the war where, um, the the North Vietnamese don't succeed militarily, but but somehow miraculously um, pull out a political victory because of the um, the the way that this offensive uh, impacted the American home front to um, to include the media and then obviously the president who in March just decides not to run for reelection. Um, and I agree with you. I think that there there are merits to kind of looking at that, um, but. I, but to me, what I find more fascinating is uh, the assumptions that that um, Tet are built upon from from all sides, especially the Vietnamese side. That um, Lai Zuan very much is hoping for what he calls a decisive military victory, and I think this is important because there are those critics of Westmoreland who suggest that if only he had. Um, focused more on counterinsurgency, the Americans would have won in Vietnam. The problem with that critique is that Lay Zuan himself was actually seeking a military, a decisive military victory, um, and Ted is an example of that. You see it again in in 1972. Um, so the problem with with that critique of Westmoreland is I, that he quite simply cannot ignore that conventional threat. Um, 
and uh, and and obviously doesn't. Uh, he also, I think, has some assumptions that that um, are misplaced in late 1967 and early 1968. He uh, welcomes the the enemy's offensive along the borderlands, uh, which draws the American forces out to the border borderlands known as the border battles of 1967. Um, he hopes that he can then take advantage of American firepower away from population centers. Um, but that clearly um, doesn't set them up for success um, in the urban areas when Tet uh, is unleashed in late January 1968. And I think there's also a set of assumptions um, based on Westmoreland participating in this salesmanship campaign run by the White House in 1967 that we are in fact making progress. And then all of a sudden Tet happens. And I think that's why um, it is a traumatic event for um, uh, for many Americans at home. Um, so I, to me, it's an interesting uh, t- tutorial in the term in terms of thinking about strategy as uh, necessarily based on certain assumptions. That uh, if we go back to our discussion about resources and ends, that you have to make certain assumptions about those ends and objectives, um, and whether those objectives are within reach. And clearly, I think Ted is a fine example um, for any aspiring strategist to to think about in terms of flawed assumptions. Well, let's turn to withdrawal, the second book. And uh, you, you introduced the book with a very dramatic juxtaposition. You know, on the one hand, JFK's President Kennedy's address to the 1962 graduating class at the United States Military Academy. And then Richard Nixon's same experience mm-hmm. with the 1971 class. How does this inform for you our involving understanding of Vietnam and the war? To me, it's about, I think, a nation coming to grips with the limitations of its own power abroad. That if you if you listen to Kennedy's speech to the graduate or to the class at uh, West Point, it is hopeful. It is um, it is inspiring as well as it is aspiring. Uh, and years later, when Nixon uh, returns to the West West Point, his um, the first time that um, he visits there, the language and and tone is so different. It's a uncomfortable realization that uh, we have not succeeded in Vietnam. That uh, the world is still dangerous. That um, that for the most part, our objectives have not been as accomplished, uh, that the war is is not um, advancing American interests, but in fact, um, um, weighing them down. And so to me, I, I think it, it, it's a nice way to, to think about this larger episode within um, with the American experience in the Cold War of really the first time uh, a generation of Cold Warriors coming to grips with the limits of American power. And I think that's a useful uh, perspective to be gained from uh, a study of Vietnam is that there are in fact limits and uh, military power does not always achieve the political objective set out for it. And, um, and to have a discussion about why that's the case and, and why ultimately Nixon comes to that conclusion, I think is an important part of the story, um, especially as um, Westmoreland leaves and Abrams takes um, takes hold for, of MACV because as you see Abrams take hold, there is another set of aspirations that follow him that I think are still part of the larger Abrams myth that we're dealing with today. Well, we could confront the myth, the myth head on at the start. I mean, you describe, and I don't think it's just you, others, other historians point out, you know, with Abrams's appointment to the head of MACV in the summer of 1968, mm-hmm. you know, this is going to be a new start. We're going to jumpstart a war that's been mired in stalemate. Uh, we're going to to reintroduce new approaches to counterinsurgency and local local operations. I've got, to, I've got to ask in the first case, I mean, is that even a realistic assessment of the war's progress up to that point? And then the follow-up then, mm-hmm. which we'll probably repeat later, um, is was Abrams's leadership all that great of a difference yeah. or a change? So first point? off, uh, I, I don't think that uh, there are, there is much of a difference in terms of uh, the military situation after Tet, that uh, except for obviously the rising casualties, 
Um, if you just go back to the subtitle of Ron Spector's uh, very good book after Ted, it's the bloodiest year in Vietnam. Um, but despite those increasing casualties, uh, Abrams leaves 1968 the same way he entered 1968, which is facing a stalemated war. And so uh, as much as Ted is touted as a, um, as a turning point from a military perspective, uh, the war is still very much stalemated in 1968. Um, and, uh, and clearly Abrams is dealing with that. And, and then also obviously after the election of Richard Nixon is dealing with the, the political decision that, um, that he is going to have to preside over, um, a war that will not be won in a traditional sense. Right. Well, I wanted, I wanted to add to that. I mean, you, I don't disagree. It's, it's stalemate as much as 68 after mm-hmm. Ted, particularly after March. I have to wonder how much of that is due to Johnson just basically advocating responsibility after he's, you know, declared he will not be running. You know, he's, you know, right. going to call him clearly a broken man at that point. You know, with with no further incentive or desire to, yeah, I, I think it to it, yeah. right. In one sense, there is, uh, um, you know, there's a bit of replication in the summer of 1968 as there was in the summer of 1965 that the the military commander in Saigon, the American military commander in Saigon, um, is left to his own devices in terms of coming up with a strategy to to deal with the ongoing problems in Vietnam. Um, so that you know. Johnson making the political decision not to run leaves Abrams in a sense in the same place that Westmoreland was in terms of crafting a strategy that um, uh, that has not all that much input from the White House. Uh, and then to your second question, uh, there my research has found very little, if any, major changes to American strategy after uh, Abrams takes takes over. And in one sense, I don't think we should be surprised by that. In fact, I, I have not found one program initiated under Abrams that was different than under William Westmoreland. Clearly, Abrams tried to think about the war, as he called it, a, a one-war approach, that, that this was all synchronized and, and weaved together. Although it was Ellsworth Bunker in, in May of 1967 who came up with that term, the ambassador to South Vietnam. So this idea that Abrams comes in with this brand new approach, I think, is wrongheaded because Ambassador Bunker is talking in those terms one war before Abrams even arrives in Vietnam. And I think what you also see is, is still very much a sequential approach that obviously Abrams is focusing more attention on training and equipping and hopefully modernizing the the South Vietnamese army because he knows that they're going to take more and more, uh, they're going to have to shoulder more and more responsibility. Um, He very much tries to take advantage of Tet and the destruction, though not outright defeat of the National Liberation Front known as the Viet Cong and um, that the damage they took to their political structure, Abrams wants to take advantage of that and and re-emphasize pacification efforts, but he's still very much talking in terms of getting after the enemy, of striking crushing blows, of defeating him decisively. So I, I just didn't don't get a sense that Abrams was any more imaginative than uh, Westmoreland was when it came to when it came to approaching the war. And he clearly is dealing with a, a different set of political. Uh, initiatives under Nixon, who's decided even before he enters office, as he recalls in his memoir, that total military victory was was no longer possible. And so clearly, Abrams is dealing with that. But from a strategic standpoint, I just haven't seen any evidence that there was much of a major change. And in fact, the the new official history from the Center of Military History is coming out this week that covers the. That, yeah, that covers covers Perfect the Tet period, and uh, the main author of that book has found no major change in strategy as well. Wouldn't be appropriate to talk about all this without raising mm-hmm. the counter arguments that a number of historians and and writers have brought up about America's performance in Vietnam. You know, starting from their criticism mm-hmm. of Vietnamization to pacification, to their, you know, their, their almost fanciful um, mm-hmm. appreciation of the Phoenix program, 
and such. You know, we start with Vietnamization. You know, there's, there's those historians, Louis Sorley, you name it. There are others, Harry Summers and such, uh, who insist that America's military performance in the field was the only factor that matters in determining victory. And that Vietnamization came too early. And, um, you know, had American forces been allowed to continue in the field, free of political interference, yeah. we could have somehow achieved a victory. I just can't see if there's ever really an alternative to the escalation. No, I don't think there is. And I, I am troubled by the argument that, that suggests that if only military officers were given more political leeway, a different outcome. Um, because quite frankly, that's not what war is. War is a political act. And, and the, no. the suggestion that if only military professionals can uh, be left alone in waging war, that, that takes the the process of war itself out of its necessary context, which is a, a political act. And so I've never been all that um, found compelling that this argument of a military victory and a political defeat, because it, it just tries to parse out military action from what war is. Well, it also has, I think, this mm-hmm. nefarious political exactly. context as well. It's like a right. created a Dolchstoss or right. a, you know stab in the back myth about Vietnam that can be used exactly for, for partisan purposes. Yeah, and I, I think there's just um, um, and the other sense of this too. I think is um, that that too often gets left out is, is the Vietnamese piece of this. That I I, I think at the end of the day, after uh, and to me, this is the the most um, exciting part of the field right now is that more and more scholars are relying on Vietnamese sources and uh, and bringing the Vietnamese out yes. from the shadows and putting them more center stage. Because I would argue at the end of the day that this war at its core is a competition and a struggle over Vietnamese national identity in the modern era of asking the question, the fundamental question of what does it mean to be Vietnamese in the post-colonial era? And I'm just not so sure that William Westmoreland or Creighton Abrams um, could have answered that question. I don't think any outside military force, um, regardless of how brilliant the commander was, um, could have answered that question. That that fundamentally was a Vietnamese question that had to be answered by Vietnamese themselves. Um, and And I think that's what ultimately is a, is a portion of this story that too often gets left out of uh, arguments by the likes of Harry Summers or, or Bob Sorley, that um, it, it just takes that fundamental question out of it. And if only we had um, stayed longer, if only we didn't, um, if only we had the political will, things of what would have turned out differently. Right. Right. It was a whole laundry list of, of items there. And again, we could we can go on about that at, at great length. But I want to focus some attention on Mi Lai and what it represents, not to mm-hmm. the American public. There's been a lot of great analysis of this over the last few years as well. And I'm thinking, too, of Joseph Fry's book, mm-hmm. The American South and the Vietnam War which gives a counter-narrative of how Americans viewed me lie in, in, in the southern United States. But how does hey, the fact of the massacre and it's, unva- it's being revealed and then the subsequent investigation and trial affect MACV and affect the senior echelons of the staff there, not only in their management of an, an instrument that's very damaged, but also in relating to mm-hmm. the representatives of the Vietnamese government. I think it's part of a larger uh, problem that, that MACV deals with throughout its, its, uh, its tenure in, in South Vietnam. And that is, uh, is how are military operations affecting the, um, the civilian population. And uh, I think I, I'm not convinced that uh those like Nick Terse who argue and kill anything that moves that, that, that killing civilians was, was part and parcel, parcel of American command, um, planning. Uh, yeah. 
that's another really nefarious kind of trip. Yeah, and I I actually have been in in those area. portions of the National Archives, the Vietnam uh, working the Vietnam Crimes Working Group files, and and I I, I sympathize with with authors like Terse um, because when you when you go through those files, um, it, it's emotionally draining and uh, a, a very uh, sad and ugly chapter of our American military history is brought out by spending time in those files. And clearly there were soldiers uh, like Callie who failed in their moral obligations as officers and soldiers. Uh, and that clearly um, disrupted the larger objectives that Amer the American command and the Vietnamese, South Vietnamese themselves were trying to accomplish that, that as you mentioned, complicated the relationship between MACV and, um, and, the Saigon, uh, leadership. Um, but I also, in my studies have found that, um, that both Westmoreland and Abrams were, were very much committed to trying to, to limit as best as possible, um, wanton destruction of, of the civilian population that they understood that this was a contest over, over loyalty and political loyalty. And that when, civilians were killed unnecessarily or murdered purposefully, that uh, that was damaging their, their overall uh, possibility of achieving their political objectives. Um, but I also think it is an interesting, quite larger question here of, of what war does. I think, as you mentioned, there, there are clearly many, um, not just in the South, but many Americans who are sympathetic with Cali that feel that he's scapegoated that uh that yeah. this isn't cali this is what war does to young american men and many in the anti-war movement as an example will will sympathize with cali and use him as an example of of what war does to good young american boys and why we need to to leave vietnam um others uh inside the military command i think were were less sympathetic i think uh Milai in part stems a professionalism study that's run by the Army War College uh, in the late 60s and early 70s under Westmoreland's directive mm -hmm. um, that finds some disturbing trends in terms of professionalization and, and moral, moral and ethical issues among the officer corps that have to be addressed because of this long war in Vietnam. Uh, and I think this is something that we'll probably continue to debate for years to come in terms of moral responsibilities about um, how war erodes combatants morally and ethically. Um, what what are our responsibilities to um, the civilian population in a war that is fought among the population themselves? What are the responsibilities to our own soldiers who are placed in potentially compromising right, right. or even uncompromising positions? Yeah. Well, it's another constant in the meta-narrative about Vietnam that's evolved over the last 50 years. You know, the, the idea that soldiers and Marines, at least by 1970, right. you know, are strung out on drugs and becoming largely ineffective in the field. Uh, not very. How reliable is this? I, I don't think at all. I think uh, clearly, uh, and Abrams very much is dealing with this in MACV headquarters, that after Tet in, um, in particular, I think you see many more draftees who are coming in that are uh, not only more politically conscious than their predecessors, but are also um, uh, more willing to, um, um, to experiment with drugs, to, um, to be more, more open-minded about that type of thing. Um, but my sense is that uh, that narrative is overblown that um, for the most part, the, uh, the larger American command and the soldiers in that command um, perform their duties um, just as competently as their predecessors did. I think the problem that occurs, uh, the problem that occurs is is one of not being able to reconcile the the issues of fighting in a war that you know you are withdrawing from, and I think that complicates the. Um, the willingness of soldiers to sacrifice um, and even potentially sacrifice their lives for a war that they know is not going to be won. Yeah, I'm going to borrow directly, again, your own questions that you raise. 
as you begin to summarize the end game in Vietnam for MACV. And that question is, at what point would American military and civilian leaders finally lose their leverage over the course of events inside South Vietnam? Now, some might argue this took yeah, place yeah. as early as 1965. You know, why raise it here at this point? Well, I, I think it, it it's a question that has to be asked in terms of um, Nixon's responsibilities to um, to leaving the war, and he very much is uh, comes in as I mentioned, knowing that total military victories, he calls it, was no longer possible, and and announces in in late 1969 that um, the mission of the Americans in Vietnam is to basically hand over the war to the South Vietnamese to give them full responsibility of state security to the South Vietnamese themselves. So I think the question then becomes is if, um, how quickly should Nixon have, have left the war? Um, you know, the, the argument is that, that we stayed on for four more years at a cost of thousands and thousands of more Americans and Vietnamese lives to accomplish not much. Whereas if we just ended the war as soon as Nixon took over, um, we would have um, saved an incredible amount of life and resources um, and ended up in the same place. Now, Nixon's retort to that, is, as well as Kissinger's, was that um, that we had to withdraw from Vietnam as a matter of policy, not as collapse, that this was still part of a, a larger puzzle within the Cold War of trying to balance uh, a renegotiation with the Russians and with the Chinese in terms of rethinking about larger Cold War relationships. And if we left Vietnam as a matter of collapse rather than policy, that that was going to undermine Nixon's larger foreign policy aims. It doesn't ring very, very strong or very true. I don't think because you consider that as a can't help but mm -hmm. consider that as a purely American-centric right. or, or American exceptionalist view. Because of course, who are the people who are really suffering? Yeah, here? it's a, it's a Vietnamese, In addition to American soldiers and casualties. When does Nixon give up on Abrams? And and is that you know how what does that say about Richard Nixon's own character? Well, I. Um, I think there's a, a frustration that is building with with Abrams as as early as 1970. Um, that um, there's not a lot of faith in Abrams as a military commander, um, and especially in Lam Song 719 in 1971, they feel that um, the White House feels that that Abrams is misleading them in terms of evaluating the larger campaign. Um, he uh, in March of 1971, actually considers relieving Abrams of command and sending Alexander Haig, who was then um, uh, Kissinger's military deputy on the on the National Security Council staff, um, to Saigon. He cools off the next day and and decides he's not going to relieve him. That happens again in in the following year during the Easter Offensive in the spring of 1972. That there's this this um, disagreement over air power, and Nixon again just goes into um, what he calls a cold rage or what Haldeman his, um, uh, I'm sorry, what Haig calls a cold rage. And, um, you know, so I, I think what it says is not so much, uh, about Nixon himself and, and the relationship he has with Abrams, um, which is, <laughs> um, difficult at best. Um, but I think what it says is, uh, something larger about, um, Vietnam in the sense of why is it that the commander in chief is frustrated with his military commander? And I think it is because going back to how I think withdrawal in Westmoreland's war linked together is the complexity of strategy that Nixon's strategy is just as complex as, uh, anything under Johnson's era that, that Nixon is trying to engage in Vietnamization, as you mentioned, which is handing over, uh, the South Vietnamese, uh, the war, uh, pacification. Uh, there's diplomatic isolation with North Vietnam. There's peace negotiations. There's the withdrawal of U.S. forces. That's that's a complicated problem for Abrams to figure out in terms of implementing that strategy. And when Abrams is incapable of doing that um, to Nixon's satisfaction, I'm not sure any officer would have been able to do it 
to Nixon's satisfaction just because it was so complicated, um, that that causes frustration in the White House. Um, now, I don't think Abrams does himself any favors. Um, he's not. He's, he's not been well sick. Man. He's uh, And as I mentioned in the book, you know, I don't think this is a salacious footnote, but he's got a drinking problem. That drinking problem is... is uh, is made aware of in the White House. And, um, you know, so they see these kind of personal failings as, as professional failings as well that are in, interlocked. And I think that's why that contributes to this rocky relationship um, between the, the White House and MACV headquarters. And that, I think, just complicates the, the withdrawal process from Vietnam is because you have such a contentious relationship between MACV and the White House that um, that that strategy of withdrawing from Vietnam as a matter of purpose um, in many instances is undermined because of this poor relationship between these these two critical um, personalities in the war. Well, you get to the end, and what I, again, appreciate about what you've done here is you make the strongest case I've seen in a book that is, or two books that are focused on the American perspective of the war, Mm -hmm. strong case for Vietnamese agency in its outcome. And then no matter what the United States did militarily, the war's outcome resides with the Vietnamese conduct of the war. Mm -hmm. We've spoken about, you've spoken about this already, but I think it's valuable uh, not merely in a historical context, but I think also as an educational context, as we look at how we can take these case studies that you developed, and as you mm-hmm. say, look at current policy, look at current initiatives, um, and even future ones. What would you suggest would be the biggest takeaway for readers of Westmoreland's War and Withdrawal? as they look beyond Vietnam? I think it's, as I mentioned earlier, that there are limits to what we can accomplish. And to me, the value of rethinking about Westmoreland's strategy in particular is um, the the narrative that that is encouraging to policymakers um, is that Westmoreland had a single focus, which was attrition. When Abrams takes over, he turns the war around because he has a more comprehensive approach, uh, places the the allies on the precipice of victory, and then uh, it's the civilian policymakers that, that pull the rug out from um, from not just the American military command, but from the Saigon leadership and the South Vietnamese population as a whole. That narrative, I think, is 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 not only problematic, but potentially dangerous because it tells this story of this savior general coming in and uh, with a new strategy and, and a new thought process can turn around a war um, almost immediately. However, if we look at Westmoreland's strategy as something much more comprehensive than just attrition and see that it still came up short, that tells a very different story, I think, and a much more important story that what if Westmoreland approached Vietnam more holistically than is uh, a standard narrative? What if he felt, um, or what if he he included political, economic development issues into his strategy as well as trying to destroy the enemy, and still failed to accomplish his political objectives? That tells a very different story, I think, for current day policymakers. Um, and if we continue that story, where a new commander comes in. And tries to make adjustments. Um, we can say that maybe he emphasized, uh, Abrams emphasized things slightly differently than uh, Westmoreland did, uh, and still was only able to achieve a stalemate. Then that should tell us something about the limits of American power abroad and the assumptions we make about military power offering us political objectives in a, in a rather easy fashion. And so to me, that's the value of of gaining some perspective from this conflict is if we take a more objective approach to American strategy and think about it as one that is is not as narrow minded and wrong headed as as some previous historians have suggested, then that tells us uh, I think a very that tells us a very different story I think that is is potentially more useful to us. 
when it comes to uh, our study of Vietnam. It's a good way to go. Okay. Well, it's time for our last questions. (laughs) These have little to do with the books we've been talking about. (laughs) First, Greg, what are you reading? or viewing or consuming these days that you find really interesting? Uh, to me, like to I, I think what I'm reading right now is uh, um, is works that are related to what I'm teaching this semester, which is a course, a graduate course on war, myth, and memory, um, which I've just been really excited about putting together and, um, and teaching. And so what we're doing is kind of taking a, a um, as much as we can, a holistic approach to to how societies not only remember war, but but turn war into certain myths, and and how war can become, in a sense, politically useful. Um, and so, I'm reading just some wonderful uh, works. Uh, we're using David Blight's Race and Reunion on on Civil War Memory, which obviously has been in the news lately. Um, We've got uh, some great works we're going to be tackling on on how Americans uh, and Germans and Japanese all remembered the uh, remembered the Second World War differently. Um, exactly, uh, like one one of them, story. and uh, yeah. and as an example, the the complicated uh, post war uh, memory in Germany of the Second World War, I think, is is fascinating for for students to, to tackle. Uh, we're taking a look at the My Lai massacre from, uh, from the Vietnamese perspective, not from the American perspective and how it's remembered there. Um, so it should be a, I think a, an exciting course, um, in terms of seeing how history is, is used and, and often misused to construct, um, certain collective memories in societies and, and certain myths that, um, are oftentimes socially or politically useful. Um, and, so, yeah, <laughs> I'll be looking yeah. online to get your syllabus. I want to check that reading list. Out. <laughs> so, well, the second question that is, is what's next on your slate? I mean, what you uh, well, I next? think, uh, I think I've said all I can say about American strategy. So I don't think I've got anything left in the tank when it comes to that. So, uh, what I'm, what I'm looking at, uh, now is, uh, more of a social and cultural study of the, uh, 1950s and 1960s uh, in terms of masculinity um, and its relationship with the armed forces uh, through the specific lens of men's adventure magazines in the 1950s and 60s and how the construction of, of um, military masculinity is portrayed in these magazines, um, how relationships between uh, men and often um, soldiers or veterans, uh, relations between men and women. And uh, and often I think what you find in these magazines too is a, a strain of sexual violence that uh, what I'm hoping to explore is, is the narrative space that is opened up um, in these magazines that might be replicated um, in Vietnam. Well, I mean, I envy you in that, but it's, I, uh-huh. I would love to work on a project like that myself. But by the time I get there, <laughs> it's going to be all gone. <laughs> yeah. Very little of it will be left for me. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Well, I really Greg, yeah, I enjoyed the conversation. I really did. I really enjoyed it. Okay, Greg, sounds good. Good luck on everything going forward. And for our listeners, this is your host, Bob Wintermute, signing off for new books in military history. Thank you for listening.